Here's the thing about Jesus that might seem, and it seemed to the people of his day, a little bit contradictory. Jesus was, Jesus was a teacher, and Jesus was always teaching and talking about things like morality and purity and holiness and righteousness. In fact, he had a high standard of righteousness and purity and holiness and morality, an incredibly high standard. I mean, so much so that he would say things like, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out, right? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I mean, Jesus had this very high standard of morality, but at the same time, he hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. And the people of his day thought, how, how, can you, how can you justify those two things? How can you reconcile and harmonize those two things? A person that has this very high standard of morality and at the same time hangs out with tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners. And, and so they set about trying to, to trap him. And that's what our text this morning is about. So if you got your Bible, John chapter 8. And I think there's so many incredible lessons that we can learn from this. And we, we kind of skipped over... John 8, 1 through 11, because as we said when we were looking at the the Feast of Booths, you remember when we were talking about the Feast of Booths, that this story is kind of interrupts the flow of that. And so you may have like a little footnote in your Bible that says, well, in the earliest manuscripts, this text wasn't there. It goes somewhere, but we're just not exactly sure where it goes. So let's read this, this story, though, and see what we can figure out about the way we treat people in our life and the standard of morality that we have. John chapter 8 and verse 2, early in the morning he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. And we know the sort of things that Jesus was teaching, don't we? Again, when we look especially at books like Matthew and Mark and Luke, look at the things like he said in the Sermon on the Mount, that's the sort of thing that he was teaching. He was teaching that, that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he would never, and, and he didn't condone anyone contradicting the law. And so he's sitting there in the temple and he's teaching the people and the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Obviously, it's a trap. They, they weren't expecting Jesus to actually stone her, right? That, that's not what they, they were expecting. In fact, what they really hoped, I think what they really hoped, was that Jesus would say the law was wrong, right? I think that's what they hoped Jesus would say. Jesus would say, the law was wrong. We shouldn't stone people like this. We're just going to gloss over this. We're just going to pass over it. It's no big deal. Let her alone, right? I think that that's what they hoped Jesus would say. And then they could say, ha, see, we knew it. We knew this guy that's hanging out with these kind of people. We knew that he didn't really believe the scriptures. We knew he was really a bad guy. We knew he didn't agree with Moses. We knew that he would say, if we pressed him on it, that the law was wrong. And so maybe that's what they were hoping that he would say. Let's kind of explore that for just a second. On the one hand, we know from everything Jesus taught and for believers in the scriptures, that the law is, is right. That adultery, any kind of sexual sin, 
Any kind of sin in general is destructive. We know that, don't we? We know it if we've been the betrayed, and we even know it if we've been the betrayer. We know that sin is destructive. It destroys trust. It destroys relationships. It destroys families. It destroys communities. It destroys societies and cultures. That sin is destructive. And the law was right in saying this can't be tolerated amongst God's people. And anybody who loves people and loves family and loves trust and loves harmony and loves peace really can't condone or tolerate sin, right? So on the one hand, the law is right. But on the other hand, as David read a little bit ago, let's read that text again from John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Jesus was on a mission not of condemnation, but of salvation. The law is right. The law is right that the sin can't be tolerated, but Jesus was on a mission of Salvation and not condemnation. Look what it says. God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God looked down at this world. And again, as we look through the Gospel of John and we see how John paints the world, It's a world of darkness and brokenness and sin and rebellion. And God didn't say, I hate all of y'all. I hate all y'all sinners. You're rebelling and you're doing horrible things. I hate you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So on the one hand, the law rightfully, rightfully convicts the sinner and says, this this can't be tolerated. This is breaking you. It's destroying you. It's destroying your marriages. It's destroying your families. It's destroying your cities and your societies and your cultures and your nations. It's destroying you, not just Israel, but all the world, all the descendants of Adam and Eve who keep, who keep on eating the fruit. Day after day, rebellion after rebellion, I want to choose what's right and what's wrong. I want to call the shots. I want to be the boss. I want to do what I feel like doing. If my eyes see something and it seems desirable, I want to take it and I want to taste it and I want to have it and I want to experience it. And the law rightfully says that kind of rebellious living is destroying you. And Jesus knew that. But Jesus was on a mission of salvation, not condemnation. I mean, he could have come. He was God. In the flesh, he could have come and said, all of you are rebellious and we're done with you. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, we're done with you. But that wasn't his mission. His mission was to redeem and reconcile and to bring people back to God. Not to say, it's finished, we're done, no second chances, you're out of here. But to say, we love you. And I'm going to give my life 
to bring you back home. That was his mission, a mission of salvation and not condemnation. But I I want you to think too about, go back to to verse 5. Think about this. Back in John chapter 8 and verse 5, it says, Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Such women. It doesn't literally say that in the Greek, such women. But but when you when you think about, and we've probably thought about this before, that they they adultery takes two, and that they took her and brought her there, that they were holding her maybe to a different standard than they were holding whoever the man was. And obviously, we'll see in just a second that they were holding her to a different standard than they held themselves to. And the fact, I like the way that it says that, such women. Because that's how we tend to talk about people, isn't it? Such people. People like that. Those people. Those kind of people. And this is how injustice happens, isn't it? We hold people to a different standard. In fact, we dehumanize people sometimes. And we say they're wrong. They've done this thing that's wrong, whatever it is, and we sort of put them in a category. Now, these Pharisees and the scribes, they knew that the Roman law forbade them from putting somebody to to death. So I don't think they had any intention of stoning this woman. But they were content to use her as a pawn in their political, philosophical debate in order to trap Jesus. Do you do that? Do I do that? Do we take people human beings with stories and histories and feelings and thoughts. And because of the mistakes they've made, we put them into a category where they become those people, such people, women like that. And we put them in this category where to us, in our mind and in our heart, they're not actually people, they're pawns for our debates. We have debates about politics or philosophy or religion or culture or whatever, and we talk about such people, forgetting that they are our brothers and sisters, if nothing else, in the flesh. You know what I'm saying, right? Do we talk about people of other religious groups that way? People who reject the messiahship, the lordship of Jesus? So we talk about Muslims that way. We talk about people in the LGBT community that way. We talk about people who live in a country illegally that way. And to us, they're not people. They're just those people. And we use them as pawns in our debates. And here's what I hear Jesus saying in this text and throughout the gospel accounts and throughout the New Testament that people are people no matter how sinful. Isn't that true? People are people no matter what choices they've made. Does it change the fact that they're wrong? Does it, does it make them right? No. But people are people And I think we all have to stop and take a good, hard, long look in our lives and our hearts and ask ourselves, to what sort of people do we do this to? Do we say, such people, those kind of people, those kind of men, those kind of women? People are people, no matter how sinful their actions. Look at verse 6, the latter part of verse 6. 
Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, I know you're all wondering, what did Jesus write on the ground, right? We've, we've wondered that for 2,000 years. And, and, and the text doesn't say, right? It doesn't say. Otherwise, we'd know. And I'd just tell you, here, here's what Jesus wrote on the ground. It doesn't say. And, and in fact, it doesn't even say that the scribes and the Pharisees reacted to whatever Jesus wrote on the ground. So what Jesus wrote on the ground really isn't the question. The real question is why. Why did Jesus write on the ground? Maybe something, maybe it's an allusion to Jeremiah 17, 13. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe, maybe he, was, he was doing this to sort of stall for time and ponder a response to their question. Maybe he was doing it to indicate that he knew their question was a setup, that this wasn't a real question. And maybe he wrote in the dirt to indicate that. But look at what it says in verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, so he really only stood up and gave them an answer after they continued to press him. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, I know we all are amazed by the wisdom of Jesus, but this is one of those stories that really highlights the wisdom of Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, he engages with them with the wisdom of Solomon. I mean, I think back to the story of Solomon. Remember where the two moms come with the one baby and they're wondering, what do we do now? And the way that Solomon answers their question and the way he deals with that situation, Jesus is doing very similar thing here, isn't he? And he doesn't, he doesn't condone her sin. He doesn't say, well, I don't really have a problem with adultery. Adultery is no big deal. Everybody makes mistakes. Just forget about it. He doesn't say the law was wrong. He doesn't condone her sin, but neither does he say, okay, you're right, let's all, I'm going to grab my stone, you grab your stone. I mean, he doesn't do that either. In fact, when we look back at the law, the law had said, Deuteronomy 17 and verse 7, that witnesses to a crime were supposed to be the, the ones to first put a person to death. So if the death penalty was going to be carried out, then the people who put their hand against them very first needed to be the witnesses, the one who actually saw the crime. But that, that makes for an interesting question, doesn't it? What if the people who witness the crime are also guilty? Do they make a very good witness if they've also been committing the same crime or similar crimes? Or if they've sort of set this person up and they've been a false witness? Should they be the first ones to put that person to death? And so Jesus, Jesus does something amazing. Not only does he call their bluff... But he also puts them on trial. That's exactly what he does. In one statement, okay, fine. Whichever one of you is without sin, you be the first to cast a stone at her. And so now, all of a sudden, instead of her being on trial, now they've got to put themselves on trial. Now they've got to reflect on their own lives and their own hearts and their own actions and ask themselves, am I guilty? Because in order to accuse her, then I've got to acquit myself. Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, now, now it's interesting, isn't it? You picture Jesus is there on the ground. He's been writing, doodling, spelling. I don't know what he was doing, but he's writing on the ground, and she's standing there 
All of the other accusers are gone. And now, now for the first time, she's with someone who is actually sinless. The person who's sinless cast the first stone. And now she's actually standing before the only one who really does have the moral purity to accuse her or condemn her. But verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, and I think this statement captures the whole story in one sentence. Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Three takeaways that I get from that sentence and from the whole story. Number one, Jesus is on a mission of salvation and not condemnation. What Jesus lives out right here is exactly what John 3, 16 and 17 said. I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world. I didn't come to put people to death. I didn't come to throw stones. I came to reconcile people. I came to save people. I came to renew people's relationship with God. I came that people might have forgiveness and mercy. Jesus was, but notice I didn't write was, because it's not just was. Jesus is now. Jesus is alive. Jesus is living. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on a mission of salvation and not of condemnation. This is the time of salvation. And Jesus is on a mission of salvation and not condemnation. Number two, people are people no matter how sinful their actions. This woman was a woman. She had a story. She had a family. She had made wrong decisions. She had sinned. She had rebelled against God. I don't know her story. You don't know her story. The Pharisees and the scribes that used her as a pawn in their little game to try to trap Jesus, they didn't know her story. In fact, in the text, they never once actually talked to her. They never once addressed her. The only person who ever addressed her was the one who knew her story. She had a story. And so does everyone with whom you come into contact. And not only the people you come into contact, the people you don't even know. Your family, your friends, your neighbors, strangers, people that you see on television. Everybody has a story. People are people, no matter how sinful their actions. And then number three, and I think this, this has to be pointed out, that correction and mercy are not mutually exclusive. Jesus didn't say the law was wrong. He didn't say you haven't done anything wrong. He said, neither do I condemn you, mercy. Go and sin no more. Correction. That you can do both. Have mercy and offer correction. And I found in my life, and maybe you found this to be true too, in, in what you've experienced and people that have extended mercy to you, and maybe the people to whom you've extended mercy, that when you extend mercy to someone, they're a whole lot more likely to accept correction from you. Have you seen that? When I was doing youth ministry, and we'd have young people that would come into the youth group, and, and they didn't come from a church background, they didn't know the Bible, they didn't have a relationship with Jesus, they, I mean, it was all new to them. 
and the clothes that they would wear and the words that they would say and the movies that they would watch and all of these things. I had a lot of people in the congregation, older folks that tell me, hey, you need to get onto them or kick them out or they don't need to be here. But I found it a whole lot better to extend mercy to them. And after a while of extending mercy and mercy and mercy, it was amazing how they received the correction as well. And to say, have you ever thought about this? Maybe we could change this. Let's work on this. Have you seen what the scripture says about this? Mercy and correction are not mutually exclusive. But sometimes we treat them like they are, don't we? We, we think we either have to be merciful and treat people better than they deserve to be treated, or we offer correction to people. We say, you're wrong. What you're doing is wrong. No mercy for you. You're wrong. Or we say, I don't care what you've done. I'm just going to be merciful to you, and I'm not going to tell you that what you've done is wrong. Jesus didn't think those two were mutually exclusive. He did both. And so can we. And if we love people, that's exactly what we'll do. Extend mercy to them? Why? Because we need mercy. In, in a way, we're both people in this story. We're both the Pharisee and the woman caught in adultery. We also often have been the person caught and the person who's done wrong and the person who knows they've done wrong and needs mercy extended to us. But at the same time, we can so very often be the accuser with our finger pointing and saying those kind of people deserve punishment. We've got to remember that these two things go hand in hand. We need mercy and we also need correction. We need our Savior to come and extend mercy to us and also to say, sin no more. Stop. Stop going in that direction. It's destroying you and destroying your relationships. And there's probably many of us this morning that have been doing things that we know are wrong. And we're caught in a trap. And we're afraid that if we were to tell somebody here about it, that they would do exactly what those Pharisees and scribes did. We're afraid of that. But I have more faith in these people because I think this is a group of people that have received mercy and are ready to extend mercy. But we also, all of us, need correction as well, don't we? You can't keep going down that path. You need forgiveness and mercy and grace but you also need correction. And we need to give that to each other. We need to have the sorts of relationships where we can do both, where we can be merciful to people and we can say, I still love you. And I want a relationship with you. And I'm not going to throw stones at you physically or verbally. But I also want to tell you, this behavior is destroying you. And I love you enough to say that. So here's the moment of truth question. Here's our moment of truth question. How might your life be different if you joined Jesus in his mission of salvation rather than condemnation? If every time you're tempted to wag your finger and say, those kind of people, you know those kind of people, they deserve punishment. If every time you were tempted to think that or say that or express that in one way or another, instead you say, how might I join with Jesus in helping to bring those people closer to myself, 
closer to God by offering both mercy and correction. Merciful, loving, correction, direction. The same thing that you and I have received from Jesus. We're thankful, aren't we? I know I am. I'm thankful for the mercy that Jesus has extended to me in saying to me, Wes, neither do I condemn you. Go. Sin no more. It's what every Sunday morning reminds me of. Every time we break the bread and drink the cup, every time we look into each other's eyes, that Jesus has saved me and corrected me. And I constantly need his mercy and correction. And our job as his followers, is to join with him in that mission of salvation rather than condemnation. Our job isn't to go out into the world and tell them how wrong they are and to throw stones at them. Our job is to go out into the world and help Jesus bring those people closer to God. How can you do that today? Let's join with Jesus in his mission of salvation rather than condemnation. And maybe you need mercy, or maybe you need correction. Maybe you just need somebody to pray with you or encourage you. Maybe you need to be baptized into Jesus. That's that's exactly what baptism is. It's both mercy and correction. It's saying to God, I've been wrong, and I've been going in the wrong direction, and I want Jesus to straighten me out. I want to be forgiven, but I also want to be raised up to walk in newness of life. I want a different sort of life, following and joining with and partnering with Jesus. So maybe somebody here this morning, you're ready to be baptized into Jesus, or maybe you just need prayers. You can meet with our shepherds after service, or right now, come forward as we stand and sing this song.